Welcome to Strictly Jojo, a podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, where every Jojo episode is reviewed by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. This is episode seven, and we're reviewing part one, Phantom Blood, Sorrowful Sorrowful Successor. Guys, uh, we're just going to leave that in there because I've, I've been having a hard time with that word. Hmm. Sorrowful Successor. As always, there'll be spoilers for this episode and anything that's happened previously in Jojo, so you've been warned. I would like to start off this podcast episode by sharing with you all that I recently came to the realization that the mask looks like it has a giant turd on its forehead. It looks like there is a giant piece of poo wow. down the center of its forehead. And I think it's got like a little swirly on the one side. So it really just, you know, kind of encompasses like one of those weird looking turds and then one of those swirl poos all in one. I just, I, I realized that the last time we were watching this episode and I was like, hmm, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. I think we are all better off now knowing this piece of information about the mask. I'm actually going to pull up the picture right now. I want to like, let's, let's describe this. So, okay, I, I'm pulling up a picture and it's kind of like up the bridge of the nose. So like where the top of the bridge of the nose ends, like the, I guess the, fo- the bottom of the forehead between the eyebrows and then straight up the center of the forehead to, I don't know, like the, the crown of the head is like this big, long turd looking thing. And then on the right side of the mask, if you want to follow along at home and, you know, pull the picture of the mask, you know, you don't have to, <laughs> I, I implore you. Okay. Just, just give me a moment of your time. Just look at the thing. Look up the one from Phantom Blood specifically. The one that they use is like that placeholder card for, I think when it's on Japanese television, it has commercials usually right after the opening. But anyway, on the right-hand side, it kind of like swirls. Like it has this little swirly doodle guy that kind of comes off the end of the turd on the top. And it's kind of like, again, like half swirly poo and half like big turd. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Like, just look at the picture. Am I wrong? Here, let me, let me show you. Am I wrong? I'm pulling up the picture on my laptop and I'm showing Carl right now. Am I wrong? I quit. <laughs> See you guys. See you later. I felt this was important to bring up. But anyway, yeah, that's all I had to say in the beginning. We can so, dive into the episode now. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so what? Episode seven, Sorrowful Successor. It's, it's not that hard it's to say. It's very hard to say. Sorrowful I'm not even gonna, Successor. I'll just, I'll just say sad successor. But yeah, we get a very pivotal moment, another pivotal moment in the saga of Jonathan Joestar, which is, of course, the untimely and very sad death of zeppeli um r.i.p yes r.i.p even though we've only seen him in four episodes to date in this part like his his departure is still a very very impactful one and obviously a very mournful one too he's only been in four episodes right it feels like way more he appeared after the dio jonathan mansion fight which Ah, was episode three with that pepper shaker or salt shaker whatever it was yeah so episode four yeah the following one is when he comes in with his his hamon sandwich and all his glory well yeah i definitely felt like he he played a much longer role because he had such a big role in this story so yeah r.i.p zapelli it is very sad this whole episode is probably one of the most serious and emotional episodes of jojo at least for these first couple of parts um definitely i think the 
the most um, serious and kind of somber one of part one anyway. The only thing that I don't like about this episode, and it's a very similar, I guess, gripe that I had with the previous episode is just the pacing of this episode seems off because yeah, I think the focal point of it is obviously Zeppeli's death, but it seems like again, why does the exciting part of this episode happen in the very middle? You know what I mean? Because like in the last episode, we saw Bruford's death, which I think would have, I'm pretty sure I mentioned like it would have served as a nice ending to the episode. And same thing here, Zeppeli's death, you know, is so significant that it also should have been granted like a proper closure by being the finale of the episode. So it timing wise, it was just weird to see it in the middle and then Jonathan and Speedwagon like have to just get over it and then go on to their trek uh, back to Midnight Slot. I could see that. Yeah, I, I think normally you would see that whole Jonathan Tarkas Zapelli fight probably span the full length of the episode. And then to your point, kind of his death conclude that part of the episode and the story. Um, but I think my, my guess is that the odd pacing we feel with some of these episodes in part one is simply because they're trying to um, encapsulate what I believe to be chapters and chapters of manga into nine episodes. Um, and again, I think it was a smart decision on David Productions' part to only give part one nine episodes just because, again, it's it's a it's a pivotal or a very, very important um, part of the story because it lays the foundation, but I don't think it's the most exciting part um, out of this series. In fact, it's probably the least talked about part and probably the least exciting. Not to say it's not exciting in its own right, but compared to all the other parts, it probably sits at the bottom of the list. So I, I'm sure they kind of struggled with how to cram all of this into such a short amount of time. That's fair. Although in that same vein, like why nine? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I feel like this part could have been stretched out into maybe 10 episodes. Or do like half a season, like 12 mm. episodes is part one and then 12 for part two. But that means we'd get less part two. And I love part two. <laughs> but let's go ahead and just dive right into it, starting off with our synopsis of episode seven, Sorrowful Successor. The episode opens up with a flashback of Zeppeli Duda training with Ton Petty in Tibet. And instead of asking for the next day's lottery numbers, he asks his master when he is doomed to die. Back in the present, Zeppeli Duda realizes that Tom Petty's prophecy lines up with this very moment and throws his best spinning kick at Tarkas in order to rescue Jonathan. Tarkas counters by ensnaring Zeppeli Duda and giving him a nice trim off the old waist. With the help of Pikachu's thunderbolt attack, Zeppeli Duda transfers the last of his Hamon energy to Jonathan, who amasses so much power from the transfer that he breaks off his neck chain and easily disintegrates both his shirt and Tarkus's undead body. Jonathan then shares a tender moment with his Hamon master, who encourages him to continue fighting the good fight before we, he becomes one with the Hamon. Jonathan's speedwife and Poco Loco travel back to Wind Knight's lot, and after meeting a villager passing by, they believe that Dio's threat to turn the town into his undead minions is unfounded. Until that villager goes full undead Lickitung on their asses, until, until, Jonathan puts his taste buds out of commission. The trio is later joined by two other Hamon users that were summoned by Zeppeli Duda, Dyer, and Straitso, who in turn are accompanied by Hamon headmaster Ton Petty himself, and they continue their trek into town to hopefully take Dio down once and for all. Speaking of Dio, that fucking guy is up to no fucking good inside the town, 
as he turns an undead mother upon her own child as a late-night dinner and has taken Pocoloco's sister hostage. Also, those dog-slash-squirrel abominations that sit upon Dio's chest are the stuff of nightmares and deserve to be unloved by god and mortal alike and killed with fire as ASAP as possible because thanks, I hate it. And now on to our next segment of the show, Is That a Music Reference?, where we document any and all nods, homages, and tributes that this extraordinary anime makes to the ordinary world of music. The most prominent one in this episode is, of course, the names of the two characters, Dyer and Straitso, who are named after Dyer Straits, an 80s British rock band. Now, I call myself a music aficionado, but I do apologize. I'm not familiar with many of their hits, but I do have a fun fact. Their album, Brothers in Arms, was the first to sell a million copies on compact disc. I love Dire Straits. Their song, Money for Nothing, is probably one of my favorite 80s songs. So when I first saw this part, I was like, oh my god, wait, Dire Straits? As in Money for Nothing, Dire Straits? Hell yeah. And I I only really know the song super well because my dad is a huge 80s everything kind of nerd. um, And he really loves 80s music and would always play Dire Straits Money for Nothing when I was a kid and it just grew on me and I love it so much. Plus the music video itself is really cool. Yeah and I love 80s music too but again it's unfortunate and it's mea culpa that I never really listened to Dire Straits Um, but I guess you know being a Jojo fan I have to dedicate myself to that music now and maybe not on compact disc which is now an obsolete form of media. I know it's so weird to think that like we're light years beyond the CD when that was so cool when we were growing up. And yeah, like Dire Straits can hold um, the title in history for being the first band to sell an album with a million copies on compact disc. And now it's time for the JoJo meme rundown, although it's not really time for the JoJo meme rundown because honestly, I don't think there were any memes in this episode. I could be wrong. And as always, if I am wrong, please let us know and we can... We can recap those memes that we miss in if you know a future episode, but I honestly don't think there were any. Not even deals. Okay. And I don't think so. And I really love when he says that. He's like, okay, okay, and then like kills that lady. Um, but I don't think that's an actual meme. Again, I could be wrong, but I haven't seen it kind of play out as a meme before. It should be though. It's great. Okay. So rewinding right back to the start of this episode, um, I think this whole the whole focus of this episode is Zapelli and him being truly dedicated to saving the world from the power of the mask, even if it meant losing his life. It is kind of a bit sad to think that he died without knowing, you know, what happens to the future of the mask. Like, will Jonathan destroy it? Will he defeat Dio? Zapelli will never know. Um, but at least he knows he left things in very good and capable hands and with Speedwagon too. So, And... Light spoilers for whoever hasn't watched Star Wars yet, or at least knows the general plot. Um, I feel like Zeppeli, in that sense, is kind of like um, Obi-Wan, because you know Obi-Wan in A New Hope was all about training Luke, because he believed Luke to be the chosen one to, to save the galaxy. But Obi-Wan himself comes to a demise, and he never really gets to see the freedom that the galaxy will later on enjoy if you cut out the sequel trilogies at least. <laughs> um, but much like Zeppeli here, like he's almost like he is a messenger to the eventual destiny of the future, I guess. 
And in that opening flashback um, where we see Zapelli training with Tom Petty, or Tom Petty, I always say Tom Petty, but it's Tom Petty, um, he calls Zapelli his Jonathan's liberator and future. And I mean, when you fast forward to the Tarkus fight, Zapelli basically knew this was the moment he was fated to die just based on the way that um, Tom Petty described the mo- his moment of death. And even then, he still didn't hesitate to, to help Jonathan. Like, he could have easily said, I don't want to die. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to leave. <laughs> or I could try to find another way to help Jonathan without dying or find another way to destroy the mask without dying. But he knew that this was his fate. This was the choice that he made, and he accepted it long ago. So he followed through with it. I feel like I made this reference in a, another podcast episode, but it's kind of like when Dr. Strange held up his one finger in Endgame. Um, as assigned to Tony Stark. There's only one way yeah. to finish things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. It's very much this, this situation. But I think it's also because, you know, Zeppelis, he even says later on before he dies that his he dedicated his life to fighting the evil that has, that this mask has produced. And even if it's at the cost of his own life, like he has to at least set up Jonathan um, to take on that challenge Again, even if he's not around to to assist. And at least Zapelli still had the element of surprise to a certain degree because Jonathan comments that he hasn't seen any of Tarkus's tricks up until this point. He has no clue what he's capable of in this arena with these chains around his neck and Jonathan's neck. Um, and Zapelli's the same way. He, he hasn't seen anything either. So I think he's specifically commenting about that because Zapelli's going into this knowing he's going to die, but not knowing how it's going to happen. So there really is no way for him to kind of read Tarkus and be able to predict and and get around his fate. Again, it's like his fate is absolutely sealed at this point. And he just, he knows it. And again, he accepts it. And I think that's, that's very brave of him. One thing that I guess doesn't sit well, and I know there's not really any perfect way of this happening, but I felt like Zeppeli's death was just very unceremonious and that he was just taken down by like this this simple chain that was around his waist um because i don't know like he, he's he's a powerful hamon user and he gets t- taken down by such a not like like a measly object basically yeah i i agree i think he we've seen how powerful he is and the fact that he can put up a fight with pretty much any enemy or at least be able to read an enemy well enough where he can either figure out a plan on the fly or direct Jonathan on what to do. But I agree. I think this was a bit surprising that Tar- he was so easily defeated by Tarkus. But I think it was in service of Jonathan's character development because without Tarkus wrapping that chain around him and cutting off his breathing, making him vulnerable because he can't use Hamon, and then literally slicing him in half with a chain while choking out Jonathan at the same time. Um, without all that happening, Zapelli wouldn't have had, possibly wouldn't have had the opportunity to transfer all of his remaining hamon to Jonathan. Wait, he said he it was restricting his breathing? Yeah, so when Tarkus wrapped the chain around him, he said, like, I can't breathe. Which but is it's a, around his waist. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, like, his diaphragm still feels kind of... Tight. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> but okay, Araki forgot probably. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. Maybe his lungs just sit really low in his chest. Then he needs to see a doctor. <laughs> but as he's laying there half dead, no pun intended, on the floor, he reaches out and grabs Jonathan's hand. 
and he sends so much hamon into Jonathan's body that it explodes the shirt off of his chest. I'm just like, what the fuck? Like his body is like convulsing on the ground. And then you just see his chest kind of like pop out, like boom. And his shirt just explodes and disintegrates like you described earlier. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Oh, I didn't even realize his shirt was disintegrating during that moment. I just remember seeing Jonathan shirtless in the next scene. Oh, yeah. Well, it happens really quick. So if you, right after Zapelli grabs his hand, if you just watch that part where he's like, surging with hamon energy like his chest just like does this does this big pop thing and like the shirt just goes everywhere and then turns into nothing so it, it was just a very dramatic yet very brief moment that i uh i noticed i saw what you did there david production i mm-hmm. saw that <laughs> can i just say though that you know tarkus is standing there just watching zeppeli crawl up to jonathan like he could have saved himself a headache by just killing Zeppeli then and there, but he just he just observes this, not knowing that some Hamon shit's about to go down. And it's like you deserve to die after that point. As is the anime trope. It's kind of like when I think we talked about this before, maybe in this podcast or in our strictly anime podcast. Um, it's that anime trope where the enemy will literally be if you think about it literally be standing there watching the main character transform into their like you know their superpower form or transform into their next level or whatever and i'm like man this transformation is so long you could have killed this this protagonist 10 times over in the time that you were just standing here watching them so i feel like this is one of those moments Mm -hmm. so after zapelli gives all of his hamon and therefore all of his life energy to jonathan we do see him become suddenly very old um and i'm wondering at this point i mean i i kind of know the answer just because i've seen the show but um i'll kind of play coy here he is transferring his life energy so either he's becoming very old because he's given him all the youth that he possibly has or possibly because hamon has kind of sustained him for a while and now he's kind of i don't know like deteriorate deteriorating because he doesn't have hamon to kind of keep him going because hamon i think like it's it's your blood it's it's your life energy it's it's what's kind of you know moving within you um so yeah it's just kind of interesting that he he gets really old all of a sudden so it makes me wonder how old is zapelli really yeah i was gonna say because the opening flashback it says that it takes place in tibet in 1863 and i'm assuming present day right now is like 1880s so only 20 years have passed since that point um when zapelli was training in was it the way of the celestial gate to this battle with tarkas um so i don't think he's that old which is why i kind of question why he turned into an old man but again if hamon is just life energy in general him having given it all to jonathan would have probably just deteriorated his his physical body it made him crispy very crispy and looking like colonel sanders <laughs> And during the fight, I think actually after the fight um, with Tarkus, when Jonathan defeats him or is about to defeat him, he makes this comment and he says to Tarkus, you sold the depths of your soul to Dio. And that very much harkens back, I believe, to the previous episode when he defeated Bruford Mm -hmm. Um, because Bruford, again, was a very honorable person. And after his body started to be destroyed by Jonathan's Hamon, he started to regain his, his humanness, his human soul. And therefore, he started to regain his his honor. Um, but in here, Jonathan is seeing that, you know, Tarkus has fully succumbed to 
Dio's manipulation to Dio's, you know, vampire zombie power or whatever, that, you know, he, he can't be saved at this point. He is just pure evil and Jonathan therefore defeats him. I think we talked about that in the previous podcast too. Like if Jonathan is able to save Bruford, why can't he save Tarkus? But again, this episode establishes that Tarkus sold out his soul to Dio. So he is beyond saving. Um, and I do like Jonathan's one remark where he says, not a single bone of yours will remain in this world. It's just a very bold and like intense threat. Like imagine using that against someone who's like bullying you in school. <laughs> not a single bone of yours will remain in this world. They're just going to snap you out of existence. Yeah. Like Thanos. Mm -hmm. And I also like how Jonathan's theme kicks in during this very like righteous moment. Um, watching this part one again, a second time, or actually watching it the first time, like I didn't really pay attention to any of the music, I guess. Uh, but watching it a second time now, I learned to kind of appreciate Jonathan's theme for like the the majesty of it, and, like the nobility of it. And it really shines here because Jonathan is like very firm in his resolve to, to kill off this very evil threat. So yeah, it's just nice to fully appreciate the theme now um, having watched part one a second time. I fully agree. It's a perfect fit theme, not only for Jonathan as a character, but for the time period um, and just everything that he stands for as far as being a gentleman and being righteous. So I think it was um, a very nice kind of placement, um, a good moment for them to bring that theme in because it just made, it, it took the whole fight to another level, especially given the fact that Sapelli just got sliced in half. So mm -hmm. Jonathan's raging at that point. But after that, I mean, Jonathan now carries the will of both his father and Zapelli to defeat Dio. And you you feel this, this shift in his character um, because Zapelli dies, honestly, not so much because of fate, but I think fate kind of pushes him to help Jonathan to carry on his will, to absorb his hamon, and for Jonathan to finally graduate to that next level without needing to constantly rely on Zapelli. Because when um, Jonathan is holding Zapelli in his final moments, he asks Zapelli, you know, what are we supposed to do now without you? And Zapelli's reaction is like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, you know what to do. Your, your goal is to destroy the mask and to defeat Dio. But this shows that Jonathan was relying almost too heavily on Zapelli this whole time. He was almost like Jonathan's crutch because Zapelli is the more skillful Hamon wielder, so just default to him kind of taking the lead on everything. It's funny that, you know, Zapelli's still a teacher to Jonathan until the very end. And I think this kind of just con um, reaffirms that, you know, Zeppeli knows his, his place in the grander scheme of things when it comes to this this conflict with Dio. And he even says, like, I'm contented with my fate um, because he's only there as again, like a, a sort of messenger to Jonathan, who is, I don't want to call him the chosen one, but the, the rightful person to take down Dio. So um, it's it's Zeppeli acknowledging his place in, in the story, but then telling Jonathan that, you know, you have the tools to go beat your, your adopted brother's ass. <laughs> and yeah, I do want to touch on what you mentioned about Zeppeli being satisfied with his fate. I mean, he, he says that he left his wife and his family behind to pursue the mass, destroy the mask. So I think he knows he's lived a very complicated life and that really he wasn't perfect. 
But you also can't fault the guy, I guess, for making the choice to leave his family behind. As terrible as that may sound on the surface, it probably was for kind of a a dual-ended reason. One, to protect his family against the threat of the mask and whoever wields the mask. But also because he's really the only person that we've heard of so far willing to give up everything to basically save the world. So again, on the surface, it sounds terrible that he left his family behind, but it was probably to protect them, but then also to protect the world at large. So is anyone going to tell his wife or... You know what? (laughs) (laughs) She probably thinks he's long dead by this point. (laughs) I do want to call out, though, that by this point, you know, Zabelli got sliced in half and... He like de-aged almost instantly when he gave away his hamon, but somehow he's still able to hold a conversation. Somehow he is still alive. Like he got sliced in half, but he was still alive enough to transfer all of his hamon. So then on top of being sliced in half, he's also now fucking old. And yet he's still able to keep talking to Jonathan and remind him like, this is your goal. You're fine without me. Just kill Dio and destroy the mask. I'm like, this guy should have died like six minutes ago. (laughs) There's no way you are still alive. I also thought it was funny. Like at one point, the camera just focuses on Zeppeli and he just has these two like winded breaths. It's like, (sighs) yeah, (laughs) I noticed that too. But yeah, this man should have been dead long ago, like right after his body got sliced in half. You even see it right after he gets sliced in half, all the blood that's pooling on the floor. I mean, like just, yeah, we, you get it. Like he, he's he's somehow semi-immortal in this part. Just just an, He's alive long enough to send that final message to Jonathan and get his ass in gear. But I really do appreciate that Jonathan, in those final moments, holds Zapelli the same way he held his father when when he died, George Joestar. Um, because Zapelli, I think, was a father figure to Jonathan. And, and in this part, too, Zapelli does confirm that he saw Jonathan as like a son and a best friend to him. So while Jonathan doesn't explicitly state it back to him, I do think this is that symbol that symbolization is that a symbolism. word symbolism that symbolism that Zapelli is a secondary father figure to him behind george because obviously you know his dad was very much a, a big part of his life which is sad if you think about it because jojo or jonathan's lost two father figures in the span of what seems like a week yeah and that's <laughs> probably why as we kind of move forward in the episode um he has such kind of like a a somber look on his face he's very pensive um and to my earlier point i think this is why we we really get that that the tone shift with jonathan as a character and we kind of see his character arc reach that next level i think we also have to point out that you know speedwagon has taken a memento from his his old friend zeppeli as a remembrance of him uh he takes zeppeli's hat right before they they burn his body he does, and he looks great in that hat. Yeah, I don't think I even caught uh, that Speedwagon was wearing Zeppeli's hat after this part. He kind of doesn't acknowledge it. He just is wearing it, and you see so many memes of Speedwagon in that particular hat that I, I honestly thought it was part of just his normal character until I watched the show, and I was like, oh, someone else wore that hat first. Yeah, it's a very stylish hat for the both of them. Um, and again, I think... It's just a nice way for him to remember his old friends, Eppoli. Yeah, a nice memento. 
So in between kind of what's going on with Jonathan and Speedwagon and Zapelli, we get a, a glimpse into what Dio is up to. And we see a very wicked and twisted moment um, where he tricks a woman into eating her own child. And as we called out earlier, I fucking love this part because he says, okay, three times. But the way he says it is just so great. Like Dio's voice actor is just phenomenal. I don't know what it is about him. He has that very like throaty sounding voice, but it's not even that. It's just the way he says things like his goodbye Jojo part from um, the mansion fight. That's just like iconic to me. And then him being like, okay. And then him okay. saying, yeah. And then him saying, okay, okay. When the woman's like, just don't hurt my child. He's like, okay, okay, shut up. And then he just like kills her on the spot. <laughs> like, all right, deal. Damn. Yeah. And he does like, um, our, technically the truth here because he promises the woman that he's not going to lay a hand on her child but then yeah he, he turns her into an undead vampire or whatever and then she ends up eating the child herself which you know looking at it from any angle like this is just fucked up and i think this is just a, a reminder to us as the audience that you know like dio has just become this very sickening and inhumane being and it's only convinces us even more that you know Jonathan and the gang have to take him down. And Dio does call it um, after he he kills her and she kills her child. He calls it a tragedy of your own choosing, which I think reflects directly on the choices that Zapelli makes or made rather um, that led to his fated death. I think the whole theme around this particular episode is choice and how choice impacts your future. Because, um, again, if Zapelli didn't make the choice to follow through with his goal of destroying the mask and accepting his fate, would Jonathan be able to reach that level that he needed to in order to, you know, move towards finally taking on Dio? Because that's the next step. They're heading to, to fight Dio, and he's kind of changed. He's grown, and, and hopefully he'll, you know, be able to take on Dio in, in this next showdown. Um, but then also, again, this woman made the choice of wanting to save her child, but to the detriment of her child in the end of it anyway. And in the final scene of this episode, we see Speedwagon, Poco, and Jonathan heading toward Wind... Wind Knight's Lot. Wind Knight's Lot, where Dio's at. And again, Speedwagon comments on how pensive and different Jonathan seems after losing Zapelli and after losing his father. And after defeating that zombie or vampire or whatever you want to call it, motherfucking Dyer shows up and instead of just introducing himself he decides the best idea is to attack jonathan directly <laughs> with a thunder cross split attack like what the hell are you thinking it was a thunder split attack oh sorry thunder split attack like yeah that's a surefire way to gain the trust of your allies who have never even met you like wh why i don't know why he thought that, that was a good idea but jonathan takes it like a champ and bashes the head bashes the head bashes the shit out of his head with his own head. Which Dyer compliments because he says that typically people would launch their head back, which will make his attack more effective. But he, Jonathan, I guess, uses his head and headbutts him um, as the right counter. And I noticed something about Dyer where he looks like an ancestor of a future character. Oh. Though I think this is just a very far-fetched theory. And I, I don't want to spoil anything for you guys as the listeners, but I don't know if Courtney can tell which character I'm talking about. Oh, I know exactly <laughs> which character you're talking about. And I I like this. I like this a lot. Yeah. 
so I'll have to, or we'll have to see in the next two episodes of part one if if my theory about this future character holds up. We also get the introduction of Strizo and, or I guess, Strizo and formal introduction for Jonathan of Tom Petty. And I question, and I, I'm guessing the answer is no, but I question if Tom Petty has told Dyer and Strizo about Zapelli's fate because they're surprised when they find out that he died. And Tom Petty kind of plays coy a little bit, like, oh, where's Zapelli at? Even though it's clear that when Jonathan reaches out his hand to give him a handshake, he sees the hamon in him. Um. He reads his kind of hamon energy or his lifeline the sim- in a similar way he did with, um, with Zapelli in those flashbacks. So he knew. He knew that Zapelli succumbed to fate and he just kind of played coy up until Jonathan confirmed it. That makes sense now, because I was like, why why won't Tom Petty shake his hand? And then he does the whole, this is how we this is how we greet each other and does the bow. Or maybe Tom Petty didn't want to touch Jonathan's hand because he was afraid that his own shirt would blow off of his body the way <laughs> that Jonathan's did earlier when Zapelli touched his That's hand. That's true. And one thing I want to actually mention with Streitzo, Streitzo, however you want to pronounce it, um, he is voiced in the Japanese dub by Nobuo Tobita, who is actually the voice of Clovis in Code Geass, which we are currently watching. Whoa! Yeah. So per- I know that. Yeah, perfect timing on that. And that's a quick plug for our Code Geass episode, which came out earlier this week, I think. It did. It did. If you haven't tuned into our other anime podcast, Strictly Anime, um, February's episodes are going to be dedicated to the first season of Code Geass. So definitely tune into that because that show is crazy. But of course, keep listening to this one too. <laughs> so yeah, it was just a weird coincidence there that, you know, we're watching Straito, uh, who is also Clovis. I never would have guessed that though, because I feel like the way Clovis's voice is very different than the way Straito is voiced in this episode. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just overthinking it, but yeah, I'm I'm surprised to hear that they have the same voice actor. And in the very very last scene of this episode, again, as Carl mentioned earlier, we see Dio with some weird dog squirrel looking guys and Poco's sister. And there's nothing really to say about this other than it's just weird. It's just weird that there are some dudes who got turned into zombies, yet they actually look like dog squirrel things, and they're sitting perched on Dio's lap. I don't get it at all. Yeah, we've mentioned this before. Like, there is no reason or logic behind certain things that happen in in JoJo, this being included in that. And I don't know, it's just weird that, you know, we, we just accept it <laughs> uh, and say, like, oh, Rocky forgot. But I did want to say, like, along with this these weird creatures or whatever, um, not understanding how they came to be or where they came from, Going back to when Jonathan Speedwagon and Poco are walking into town and they come across Mr. Adams, who's one of the town folk, how is it that Mr. Adams was able to control his undead nature until the very last second when he whips out his long-ass tongue? Um, I don't know, but I feel like Jack the Ripper had kind of a, a similar control because he looked normal until he squeezed those knives out of his body. I guess, but yeah, watching this episode a second time, that popped into my head. 
honestly, it's probably just to confuse the audience because I think the whole point was, you know, let's let's trick the audience because at first it sounds like he's saying something weird and then he does like this weird finger point thing next to his face. Like your sister's going to beat your ass when you get home. Mm. And then he keeps walking and then his tongue grows very, very long. And yeah, it's just to, to throw the audience a fun loop. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Okay, like... <laughs> And we see these these creatures, which I don't know if like Dio just grabbed the body of like a dog and then smashed a human's <laughs> head on it or however it was made. But well, why would he even want these things crawling on him? Because yeah. they're not pets. They're like dudes. They're actual dudes, like some some guys who are gross now and look like little creatures. Like, I wouldn't want them perched on my lap. I don't know. Again, maybe it's just to show again how sick and twisted Dio has become. It's a power move. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's an alpha move. That's what that is. Mm-hmm. And let's go ahead into our final thoughts on episode seven, Sorrowful Successor. So what did you think of this episode as a whole? Um, again, I thought this was probably the most serious and somber episode of part one. Um, absolutely critical and probably the most impactful to Jonathan's character development and his growth as a a fighter, a Hamon wielder, whatever you want to call him, um, because this is the most obvious tone shift for his character, and it's going to set him up for what's to come in the next couple of episodes. Um, but I thought overall it was an episode with a lot of payoff. You get a lot of answers, and it, it progressed things pretty quickly. And yeah, R.I.P. Zapelli. What about you? Yeah, this episode was was good. I think the highlight was obviously Zeppeli's death, and it was sad to see him go. But as I mentioned in the beginning, I think his death just deserved a more properly paced episode um, or just have it focus on Zeppeli uh, rather than kind of splitting it into these two parts. Because with this one, I feel like the second half of the episode kind of drags, which is a shame because we get introduced to Dyer and Straitso, and we see Jonathan finally meeting Ton Petty in person. Um this episode was just a reminder that the show is cramming so many things into nine episodes that rather than like fleshing things out a little bit more. And I think you mentioned it, it might just because maybe because of the manga's pacing. Um, but it was, it was a good episode overall. And we now have like an Avengers like crew that's been assembled to take down Dio. But if this episode was any indication, I'm sure that the rest of this crew is just going to serve as like plot points to highlight Jonathan's strength and determination and the fact that he is probably the only person who has the means and capability to take down Dio himself. Hell yeah, he's Jojo, man. Right. It's not called the crew's bizarre adventure. It's called Jojo's bizarre adventure. I wouldn't mind though if it was called Speedwagon's bizarre adventure because honestly, at this point, he's having a way more bizarre adventure than <laughs> Jojo true. is. Like Jonathan's, he's he's weirded out, but he's just like, all right, this is this is fine. Like it's like the that meme of the dog with the room on fire, and he's like, this is fine, everything's fine. That's Jonathan mm. right now. Um, Speedwagon's more like the one who is screaming as the fire is kind of engulfing the room around him. So. This is really more like Speedwagon's Bizarre Adventure. Yeah, maybe this is all just his memoirs. <laughs> and that wraps up Episode 7 of Strictly JoJo. New episodes premiere every other Monday. 
You can follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series. And check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com, where you can reach out to us to share your thoughts on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. You'll also find more info on Strictly Anime, our other podcast for anime reviews and discussions. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our love of JoJo. Stay weeb, everyone. To be continued.